text about how God's implanted word, this word that he has implanted in our hearts, and, and, and when it's the Holy Spirit is active in our lives, that it's going to produce a change in us. And we looked at the last couple of verses where we see that, that James begins to talk about religion. And he says that when one has been changed by Jesus, that we're going to avoid, first of all, worthless religion by having control over our words. That we're going to be changed by Jesus and out of that change that you and I are going to be a people who have control over our words. And, and, I, and he wanted to communicate to us that our words can build up or our words can cut. And when we don't tame our tongues, we are actually cursing the very people who were created in the image of God. So his image bearers, we are cutting by our words. He says people that practice pure religion will have control of their tongues. And then he leads us to see about what it means not only to, 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 not to practice false religion, but what it means to practice true religion. And that was a general care for those that are in need. He ends by talking to us about to care for widows and orphans and to keep ourselves unstained from the world. And so there's this general care for those that are in need. And, and we will have a life that walks in contrast to the world. And so basically what we're seeing is that this true religion is going to be composed of two things. And that's going to be com a compassionate person that because of the, 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 the true religion and receiving true religion from the implanted word in our hearts, that you and I are going to be people of compassion and we're going to be people of consecration. We're going to be set apart. You see, we're going to, we're going to, we're going to walk differently than the world. We're going to be a changed people. And James mentions the word world when he talks about walking contrary to the world, he's going to mention this three times throughout his letter that we'll see in our text this morning in verse 5. He mentions it again in chapter 3, 6, and in verse, chapter 4, verse 4. And each time that he does, he is referring to the fallen world that is to run in direct contrast, that runs in direct contrast to the ways of God. This fallen world is completely, he refers to it as a world that is walking in contrast to the ways of God. And so James shows us in verse 27 that we are supposed to be a holy people. That we are supposed to be a set-apart people, going against the grain of the world and not living like the world. But a problem has crept in that we will see this morning. And the problem that has crept in is that the church had been buying in to the ways of the world. And he warns the church in Jerusalem that this is opposed to the will of God for his body. And so there's people that he's encouraging who are scattered and, and who have been dispersed because of this persecution. He, he, he has seen that the worldly ways, they have begun to mirror the world as a church. And James is going to challenge him this morning with this question. And that question is, are they going to accept religion on their terms or are they going to accept a religion on God's terms? Are they going to accept religion on their terms are they going to accept it on God's terms? And to be honest, I struggled with this text this week. Not in its meaning, not in its application, I, 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 specifically as to what it's to, supposed to mean, but for us as a body, what does this mean for us? You know, I look at our church and I say, well, we're not really a church of partial people and, and we're not a church that's mirroring the world. And how does this possibly relate to us? And as I wrestled over the course of the week, I felt yesterday evening that the, the challenge just somewhat resonated to my ears and my heart. And I believe it will resonate to our ears and hearts this morning today where we're going to have to answer the same question. Will you and I as the church, are we going to accept religion on our terms or on God's terms? 
Well, we accept religion the way God intended. And before we're too quick to answer that question, I want us to begin where we left off last week in James chapter 1, verse 26. And let's read our text this morning. James 1, 26 says this. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there, or you can sit down at my feet. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? Verse 8, if you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. For he who said do not commit adultery also said do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak And so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Will you pray with me? God, we need you this morning. God, there is a heaviness to this text that convicts us as the church on how we are to be the church. God, I pray this morning that as, you, as we take your word, that you be our teacher. God, I need you. We all need you. God, my words will not change anyone, but your words can change us all. So God, we pray this morning that not only will you implant the word in our hearts, but may we receive it and learn from it and be changed and shaped. And God, we ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. If you were to team up with the various people in your life that you are maybe close to, maybe acquaintances with, and make a list of similarities and differences, the things you like, your favorite foods, your favorite vacation spots, your favorite music, where your hometown was, chances are you would have many more differences than similarities. You'd be much different than you are similar Some of these differences would be quite trivial, but some can be very foundational and specific. And what can happen is you and I can slowly allow the comparison game to begin to create this better than mentality that can creep into our thoughts. So this is better than this or that is better than that. 
You know, whether we're talking about income, education, our favorite football team, our weight, race, personality, our brokenness can cause us to inadvertently begin to judge by this criteria as to what is superior or inferior. And it can elevate our personal experiences over someone else's in a quest to be superior. We do this with our favorite sports teams where we allow this, the team to determine how our week goes by how well they performed. Why is that? Because we want our team to be the best. In the comparison, we want our team to be better than your team. You know, we get our kids involved in every possible activity and drag them from place to place, whether or not they want to, so that they are more well-rounded than the others around them. If, they can, if we can make them good at all these things, then they are slightly, you know, they're in the upper, upper end of being superior to others. And when this tendency migrates over into the church, it is so easy for conflict and division, separation and distractions to creep in. And comparison sets in on who is putting out the better product. What church has it figured out? You know, whose church is doing it better? And this can be a danger to the body. A danger when we begin to show partiality based on certain criteria that lies outside of the criteria that Christ has clearly laid out and communicated in his word. But in the same place that partiality can tend to set in, our differences can be an incredible opportunity to display the glory of God, to allow the glory of God to visibly display itself through the mosaic of differences that our lives make. You know, I once read that there are five very specific ways that we can show partiality. Appearance, age, ancestry, achievement, and affluence. Age, appearance, ancestry, affluence, and achievement. And so we, we have these differences that can, can, can creep in, and obviously there are some differences that are real differences. But how we handle those differences is where we determine whether it'll be an opportunity to express God's glory or an opportunity for partiality to develop. Let me give you a couple of examples about this. Let's take the difference between righteousness versus unrighteousness. I want you to imagine for a moment that the body of Christ, as we know it, being made up of people from very different past. Let's say that there is a man or a woman who comes from a very dark past. A past of drugs and alcohol and sex and, and just all the darkness that you can imagine who finds mercy through Jesus Christ. Finds mercy through Jesus Christ. And then there's another man or woman who has always followed the rules. Who has always been quote unquote righteous. Who has never stepped out of line that also comes under the grace of Jesus. And in the body of Christ... These two worlds collide. Now in this place, there is an opportunity to glory in the mercy and grace of Jesus and the fact that one was a rebel and the other was a legalist, yet both had rebelled against God in their sin and had been rescued just the same. Or it can result in partiality where the self-righteous rule follower puffs up at his self-righteousness while the rebel wallows in his or her failure, distracting from the glory of God partiality because we see one as having performed better than the other take rich versus poor 
So we'll see this morning from our text where there is an opportunity to advance the glory of God by displaying the beauty of the gospel that there is no partiality in the kingdom of God between those who make much or those who make little. Now we can reflect the world and tend to lean towards partiality. Allow ourselves to see one as the rescuer and one as the rescued. Or what about race and ethnicity? An opportunity to display the glory of God and that he shows his glory through diversity as he is redeeming a people from every tribe and tongue and language. And that is what his kingdom is going to look like. And down here we have an opportunity to embrace that and reflect that, give a glimpse of the kingdom of God. Or we can allow it to be an opportunity for partiality and division. And I believe that this is the issue that lies at the heart of, the neck of this passage of scripture we read from James, the issue of partiality. Now, partiality means that we base our treatment of someone or our attitude towards someone or something that should not serve as the basement for our treatment of them. You know, the world, excuse me, the word partiality would literally mean in this text, if you went back to the original meaning of the word, it would mean to receive the face. So when we're saying that we're showing partiality to someone, it would literally mean to receive the face, to make a judgment of someone that is strictly based on their outer appearance. We see this word used in Romans 2 in a discussion between Jews and Greeks. Our community group's walking through Romans right now. As we've looked at Romans 1, 2, and 3, we've seen this word come up about partiality. And it's talking about the difference between Jews and Greeks. They had set in that, hey, we're Jews and they're Greeks. And he's saying there's, there's no partiality. We're all in need of the same salvation. Now in our text, the example that is given this morning for sure describes the issue of wealth versus poverty. Absolutely. This is a a passage where in this context, he was specifically speaking on the way they were giving favoritism toward those who had much and they were showing partiality towards those who had little. And so I believe this is what this text is about, but I believe it covers a multitude of, of divisive characteristics that can lead us to partiality. And this was happening in James. Just as the world showed partiality to those who had much, the church in Jerusalem had begun to do the same thing. As people of wealth would come into their gatherings, and this was, you know, has been interpreted to be like a gathering like what we're doing, or possibly even could describe like a courtroom setting where, they were, where the judges were sitting and hearing of, of different matters, but they would give preferential treatment to those who had a lot. When they came in and were adorned, they'd say, oh, you, hey, you come have one of the best seats. And when one would enter who was poor, they would say, hey, you can sit at my feet. And this issue is sprinkled all throughout the New Testament with the nation of Israel, who were the chosen nation. In Romans 2, Paul is dealing with an ethnic and racial issue between Greeks and Jews. And he says, listen, both are liable to judgment because of their sin. And in verse of this 11 of that chapter 2 of Romans, he says the reason why. He says, for God shows no partiality. In the world system, you honor and respect and treat well the people who can benefit you the most, those you can gain the most from. And James tells them, you are doing the same thing in the church, and this is not pleasing to me. And so we ask ourselves in the church today, and I've asked myself in the context of our church today as a leader of a church or a pastor in a church, 
Are we doing the same thing today? A lot of us have been a part of churches in the past where those who had the strongest influence in leadership of the church were the people with the most money and prominence. If you were a big tither, you'd be listening, your voice would be heard. And this is such a sad issue in the church. And among God's people, this should never be the case. But let's consider this for a moment as the church today. Are we doing the same thing? Are you and I unintentionally reverting to partiality? Have we honored partiality to those who have much, to those of our race, to those of our economic level, while neglecting the poor and the diverse? Have we designed our appearance and our church structures and our programs to reach the poor and the oppressed and the outcast? Or have we built them to appeal to people that look just like us and have the same likes and interests as us? And when people that think like us and act like us and look like us come in, do we give them the same hospitality that we would give someone who didn't think like us and didn't act like us and didn't look like us? Do we see people that aren't like us as projects and those that are like us as friends? What if God began to do a work in our body that brought in many of the poor and broken from around our city. People who do not know Jesus, nor the theology of Jesus, nor even what theology is. Are we prepared as a church to extend to them the same hospitality that Christ would? What if, Lord willing, we begin to reach people from every race and nationality in this city. We had people from all kinds of different backgrounds, racially, all kinds of different backgrounds, backgrounds from the country, they're of our origination, and God showed us favor, and we began to see people come in like that. Are we ready to embrace that, even if it meant we may have to adapt some of the things that we do to welcome them? Or are we going to take all of them and try to squeeze them into our mold that we like the most? Are we prepared in our community groups for our homes to be filled with atheists and agnostics and searchers for Jesus who have nowhere else to go to find him? Or do we see it as a, that would upset our order, maybe make discipleship a little messier and not as packaged and clean? So here's the question here. Are we as a church prepared to reach all people? regardless of their outward appearance and circumstances? And how can you and I look past obvious differences and see the heart of those who need Jesus? And this morning, I believe we see from the book of James a few reminders that I think that will help us to be able to see and have a heart for those to practice pure religion the way Christ intended. I believe we see some truth that James gives the church at Jerusalem that you and I can grasp today as the church of Venue Church on how we can be better at reaching those of all different 
types. And that's the first thing that I think we see comes from verse 1. And the way that we avoid partiality is, number one, we allow the glory of Christ to captivate our hearts. We allow the glory of Christ to captivate our hearts. Look in verse 1. He says, my brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Partiality contradicts faith in Jesus Christ as the Lord of glory. Now, James speaks clearly here to emphasize an important point and that his emphasis on the glorious Lord Jesus Christ is an emphasis on the glory of God has been revealed through the person of Jesus. And when the glory of Jesus captivates us, when we truly are captivated by Jesus, by his glory, by the glory of, of, of our Lord Jesus Christ, I think we see two things that we will, that will at, through our best being captivated, two important truths that keep us from this partiality. First of all, we see Christ's authority over the wealthy. So we see Christ's authority over the wealthy, and this changes everything. We no longer show partiality because of someone's status or financial position, but instead we honor Christ because he is rich in glory. He has made us rich through his son Jesus. When we focus on him and our relationships and our lives in him, then we see that our status and our positions fade in light of his glory. So we look at these things that would lend us to want to be partial towards, and we see how they fade in comparison to the glory of God. How his glory is so big and, and he's holy and set apart and completely above all of our earthly things that we could put prominence on. And when we focus in on that, then we see that our status fades in light of his glory. And we are all broken people in need of the glorious Lord to reveal himself to us. But then we also see Christ's sacrifice for us who were needy. We see Christ's sacrifice for us who were needy. Jesus came down from heaven in all his power and all his glory and he wrapped flesh around his deity and he walked the road that we would walk and he was tempted in every way yet without sin and he gave his life for us who were spiritually needy so that we might become rich through Jesus. He reached out to those who were the direct opposite of him. He says, I'm going to leave my wealth and my riches and I'm going to show them true riches through my life that I'm going to give and be broken for them so that they may have life. They are a needy people. They are a people that need me. And so because of the glory of Christ, we no longer show favoritism to the rich and those who are just like us because of their riches, because it is truly Jesus Christ who makes us rich in him. And we no longer look down on those who are needy because spiritually speaking, these are the exact ones Jesus came to rescue and we were all in that category. So I think first of all, for us to see how we show no partiality to those who are, we are seeking out to is that you and I must allow the glory of Christ to captivate our hearts. He gives the illustration on verses two through four and where he, he begins to talk about the partiality that was taking place there. And he says that in verse 4, you have made distinctions among yourselves and then you become judges with evil thoughts. So he's saying because you have developed this partiality, you are now judging people on who is best and who is, not as, who, who is worse. 
based on this criteria. You, have self, you yourself have become a judge with very evil thoughts. There's a second point in verse 5. Not only do we reflect on the glory of Christ, but we are held in the grip of the grace of Christ. You and I are held in the grip of the grace of Christ. Look at verse 5. Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him. So James has specifically addressed the issue of favoritism on how people are treated when they enter their gathering. And now in verse 5, James writes uh, that God has chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom. God, out of his glorious grace, has always delighted himself in showing grace to the poor of the world. He has always delighted himself in showing grace to the poor in the world. Let me read a few verses. Psalm 68.10. You can just write these down. Psalm 68.10. God, you provided for the poor by your goodness. Galatians 2.10. They asked only that we would remember the poor, which I made every effort to do. We see verses that are at the heart of the poor. We see, we, the, as Jesus preaches in the Beatitudes, blessed are the poor. He shows no partiality. So for us to neglect the poor is to neglect those who are at the very heart of God. That was his heart. So this reminds us of a couple of things. First of all, Jesus is the only one who could reverse our status from poor to rich. Only Jesus could reverse our status from poor to rich. Let me read one verse for you. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 26. He writes, brothers, consider our calling. Not many are wise from a human perspective, not many powerful, not many of noble birth. Instead, God has chosen what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God has chosen what is insignificant and despised in the world. What is viewed as nothing to bring to nothing what is viewed as something that no one can boast in his presence. Jesus reversed our status from poor to rich. And we see though in verse 6 and 7 that Jesus reverses our worldly standards. Look at 6 and 7 again. But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? And in essence, James is saying here, do you realize who you were showing this partial treatment towards? The rich are the ones that are oppressing you and you are giving them partiality. Showing them partiality. They were honoring and blessing those who were oppressing and taking advantage of God's people. They wanted favor from the wrong people. Now please hear me, hear me say this morning that poverty does not equal righteousness, nor does wealth equal unrighteousness. This is not a passage about anti-wealth. This is a passage about anti-partiality. So when we look at someone through worldly standards, we consider their jobs, their positions, their house, and a multitude of other things. But through God's standards, he flips that upside down. He says that we should view everyone through the eyes of Christ. And so when we neglect the poor, when we we neglect the heart that God had for the poor, he says, I'm going to reverse that status. Regardless of race and wealth and influence, we should look at those around us that despite, that despite power and influence are united to Christ because Christ lives through them. We are gripped 
by the grace of Jesus. And on the other side, we should see men and women through a gospel standard who are not Christians as those whom Christ created, loved, and those that he desires to know him. So first of all, all grounds for favoritism end in us recognizing the glory of God and then allowing him to flip upside down our view of the world's standards as we are gripped by the grace of Jesus. And there's a final thing. And we see this in verse 8 through 13. And that is that we are devoted to God's word. In verse 8, James starts by talking about the royal law prescribed in the scripture. The royal law, if you, were, if, if you go back into Leviticus, the reference here is to the great commandment to love our neighbor, to love God above all things, to love our neighbor as ourselves. He says it here in verse 8. If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, then you are doing well. And what James is doing here is he is, he is quoting from Leviticus 19.18 where God says to love your neighbor as yourself. So he's not talking about all the Levitical laws and moral codes of what you could and couldn't eat. He's talking about this, this royal law that's specifically about the law understood as the commandments of God to love God with all of our being and to love our neighbor as ourselves. He said, if you do these things, you are doing well. You know, the law of love, the commandments of God focusing on loving God above all things loving our neighbors ourselves. And James is saying that to show favoritism is sin, is a violation of the law of love, the law of Christ. And when you show favoritism, you are guilty of breaking the whole law. If you see that in verse 9, he said, if you show partiality, verse 10, he says, forever keeps the whole law, but fails in one point, it's become accountable for all of it. So he says that the problem of violating the law is that you are sinning and offending God himself. Look at verse 11. For he who said do not commit adultery also said do not murder. If you do not commit, adul- if you, if you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. We have violated the one who has given us the law. So how do we break the law of liberty through favoritism? First of all, by disrespecting man. By disrespecting man. Favoritism can lead to a disrespecting of man based on ethnicity and on external appearances, dress, physical appearance, skin color. And as the people of God, we must not sin in this way. As we look to grow disciples among all people, regardless of their background, and uh, we must follow God's word and go to all people, even those who aren't like us. I mean, look around this room. Whether or not we intentionally try, we attract those who look like us. So while we embrace the command to not show partiality, we have a long way to go in living out this reality. We are called to reach all people. So we, do it, we, do it, we break, the law of uh, break the law of liberty through favoritism by disrespecting man, and secondly, by dishonoring God. James says that in breaking one law, we're guilty of breaking them all. And then in verse 12, if you look back in verse 12, it says, so speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. He says that we are to put action to this understanding. He says that we are to speak and we are to act and we are to live as, as those who are under the law of liberty. So we must ask ourselves this morning, are we willing to, are we going to accept religion on God's terms? on our terms 
And then we have to ask ourselves, are we truly being the body of Christ who does not show partiality, whether that's intentionally or unintentionally? So what do we do with this? What do we as a group of people desiring to see the grace of God extend to others, what do we do? There's a few things this morning. First of all, I believe that we repent of partiality and ask God to help us overcome this sin. You and I are citizens of another kingdom. And God is assembling a people of diversity who are unified under the banner of Jesus. So as a people, as a church, what can we do as the body to make, us, make our church a reflection of the kingdom where we, can, we want to reach out to all people, all people, regardless of if they look different from us, not as projects, not as rescuer coming to rescue, but as all broken people in need of Jesus Christ. And we just being, as believers, those who have found him. And we want to tell others who have not about his goodness and grace and mercy. A second very practical thing I think that we are challenged from in this is that you and I need to practice hospitality. You know, when you look at the biblical word hospitality, it has nothing to do with how well you set your house up and how welcoming it is and how good it smells when people come in. Hospitality was kindness to strangers. So you and I need to practice hospitality. Invite people from different backgrounds, from different places in life, people that look differently than you, invite them into your home for dinner. Invite them into your life. Engage them in relationship. And we need to reach out to those that Christ reached out to. And we have a long way to go in this, but we can very practically begin to engage the broken, the same people that Jesus would have engaged. And finally, I think we have to extend mercy to others in the same way that we have received mercy. I find myself so often like the man in the parable who was given, who had been relieved of a, such a large debt, a debt he could not repay. And in the parable, it says that he cried out for mercy and the master gave him mercy. And then what does he do in response? He turns right around and he goes to the one who owed him very little and he has him thrown in prison and he demands the debt to be paid. So often our actions reflect a life who has basked in the freedom that we have through what God has given to us through grace, through Jesus Christ. And then we turn and we offer very, very little to others. We live as a people who do not recognize how great of a debt we were forgiven, how great of a debt we were rescued from. And may we hear the words this morning of Jesus. May we not just read through this text and say, it's good in theory, but may we be willing to reorganize our lives, hear the challenge of James to the church at Jerusalem as a challenge this morning to the venue church that we do not show partiality because we all have been redeemed through the grace of Jesus. So let's pray together.